gospel reading for this evening is from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us, they were at the tomb earlier this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scripture. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. I like that story. Luke's, Luke's a good storyteller, a little bit funny, dramatic, but subtle enough to leave room for imagination. These two characters, Cleopas, who we've never heard of before, and a companion, unnamed, not gendered, I like to imagine a woman, because we don't often get the opportunity to pick. So why not? The text just says two of them. The thems, maybe non-binary, are traveling to Emmaus, which is not a town anyone has ever located. So it's probably not a real place. Or maybe it's a real place, but not the sort of place that's on a map. More 
I've been in this really weird, sad place since my friend died. Sort of a place. Anyway, they're discussing the Easter events, Jesus being killed, then his body disappearing, when, lo and behold, Jesus himself joins them in this weird, sad place. But they don't recognize him. They assume he's a stranger, a visitor, they say, someone from another place, which is pretty accurate, really. He's coming from death, which is a pretty strange place to us. I think it's safe to say a place none of us have been. Now he's apparently alive again. You heard the story. They're talking about these events. Jesus asks, what are you talking about? And they're like, are you the only one that doesn't know about all this? I always think this is funny and a little bit cringe-inducing because then they start explaining to Jesus what happened to him. Mansplaining. <laughs> Jesus calls them fools and interprets for them all the things about himself in all the scriptures. By the time he's done with that, which does seem like it would take a lot of time, it's almost evening, and they invite him to stay where they're staying. And then, I love this, Jesus sits at the table with them, takes the bread as if he's the host, this strange man in this strange place, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them to eat. And then they finally, sort of mysteriously, suddenly recognize him, and then he vanishes. And they look at each other, and they're like, whoa, wow, hey, weren't our hearts on fire? Weren't they burning inside our chests when we were on the road and he opened the scripture to us? thought that much before about these words, our hearts on fire, burning inside of us. I think because, it's, I assume, because it's, I assume that it meant, like, wasn't that mind-blowing? Like, didn't we have some sort of intellectual epiphany? But this time, I was curious about the feeling in their chests. Like, Maybe they weren't just talking about a thought, a mental awakening, which is also actually, though we aren't always aware of it, physical neurotransmitters and gray matter. I've always been attracted to the thorough embodiedness of Christianity. Jesus is God made physical in the world, a body, creation, death, resurrection, all the central moments of the faith are physical. This just keeps seeming more important. In this year of spiritual practice at the House of Mercy, I've tried to be more consistent about mindfulness practice, focusing on the breath and learning when I get distracted a hundred thousand times in one minute by thoughts, usually feelings, anxiety, sadness, fear, to pay attention to what that feels like in my body. That has been really helpful to me. I think because so much gets processed in my brain, I'm often fooled into believing that that's where everything happens. I mean, I know that isn't true, but it takes some practice.
to live more aware of that, of all the things that happen not in my head. And it's so reassuring, actually. Because as much as the Church Fathers, and I don't know the history of Western thought, has had the tendency to disparage the body in favor of the rational, the cerebral, had this tendency to distrust the body, to privilege the spiritual over against the physical or material reality, I have found the body to be a remarkably dependable part of me, quite trustworthy. I mean, breathing, digesting, pumping blood to all the parts that need it, absorbing the necessary vitamins and nutrients, even if I don't know what they are. I am not overseeing the process. My body takes care of me pretty much dependably without my effort. What happens in my head, on the other hand, not very dependable. Ask Jim. I mean, sometimes, sure, but the other evening, Amra's parents, that's Miles' girlfriend's parents, called us, called my phone at dinner time. And I didn't pick it up because we were eating, but then suddenly I was like, oh my god, what if Miles was in an accident? I think Jim rolled his eyes, said, they're probably inviting us to do something with him. And I'm like, no! If Amber was sitting with Miles in the hospital, she would ask her parents to call us. My God, he's probably dead. Thank goodness they left a message in the time I sprung up from the table in panic. They were inviting us to dinner. And all the while that my thoughts were doing that, my stomach is digesting perfectly absorbing vitamin B from the broccoli, which will eventually help curb anxiety. It seems like a miracle in a way, but it's so absolutely ordinary. It happens all the time, breathing, heart beating. Not to say our bodies don't fail us, of course they do. But I don't think more than our thoughts and beliefs fail us, right? People believe Donald Trump is the savior appointed by God to redeem America. Our thoughts are not reliable. Anyway, these people Jesus finds on the road, they don't know what's going on until Jesus breaks bread and feeds it to them. When it started to be about food, like bodily fuel, something physical, they start to see. But as soon as they recognize Jesus, he vanishes. It's weird and it's interesting. And sort of how it seems to go, you glimpse it, you can't capture it. After reading this, I was, I was trying to think when the last time was that I felt my heart on fire. Something explosive happening in my chest. Like, when has that happened lately? And honestly, the most obvious thing I could think of was these laughing fits I kept having when we were in Portugal. It was quite notable. Numerous times where I felt like my chest was on fire, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't stop, not just the chest, also the stomach, you know, that kind of painful, uncontrollable, great laughter. For me, it was always related to be, me being a fool somehow. 
I think maybe that happens more in a strange place, a place you're unfamiliar with. It might have been more in the stomach, but I think that it was a lot in the chest. Delight, joy, I might call it freedom, around a sort of revelation of my own absurdity, foolishness, humanness, or something. I don't know. I don't know what these characters were remembering when they say, weren't our hearts on fire? But I like thinking about it. It seems like it was something they felt in their bodies, that had to do with revelation. I often think of revelation as more of a head thing. But this is kind of wild to me, this thing that Jesus keeps doing in his resurrection appearances over and over, eating. It happens here, the eating. And then when he appears to the rest of the disciples, a little later on, he's like, do you have any food? In John, he appears at the Sea of Galilee and promptly makes breakfast. It's almost like, just in case you missed it, the resurrection is physical. This is my body. I was listening to a Throughline podcast on Friday about AI. Anyone else listen to Throughline? I like it. And listening to that, it made me grateful for how decidedly, unavoidably embodied the Christian faith is. Probably because I was working on the sermon, but. This woman, a communication professor, was talking about the beginning of AI. She described what computers were like back then, and she says, you know the most disturbing part of the history of AI, for me, comes from the fact that these men who were working in artificial intelligence looked at these massive, noisy, metal, hot, mainframe computers and saw themselves in it. They looked at them and identified a deep affinity, like there was something fundamentally shared between their minds and these machines. She said, so right from the beginning, there's this pronouncement that human learning and intelligence can be mechanized and automated. This belief that human minds and modern digital computers, computers are species of the same genus, fundamentally the same. Simple processing machines that take symbolic information as input, manipulate it according to a set of rules, and output decisions, solutions, judgments, and so on. Like, bodies didn't matter. It was a totally disembodied conception of intelligence. No wonder we've destroyed the Earth. Another woman, a professor at NIU, says, when the mostly white men decided every feature of intelligence could be precisely described, so precisely described that a machine could simulate it, they underestimated the complexity of humans, obviously, and overestimated the capabilities of machines. And underneath all that arrogance and hubris, she said, was a total lack of understanding about what it is to be truly human. I'm not sure that we can ever wrap our heads around the resurrection, Jesus, Easter, God incarnate, but maybe we can wrap our bodies around it? I don't know. But I mean like practice, 
Like, I often can't wrap my head around prayer. But the physical act of lighting a candle as a prayer allows me to pray, even if my cognitive processing can't fathom it. Practice. Call it spiritual practice or physical practice. Like Phyllis said to me last week, practice is always embodied. How do we experience the continuing presence of the risen Christ in our reality? I really don't know. But maybe in our bodies? I was reading an article this week by Melissa Flora Bixler, a Mennonite pastor from this church in North Carolina. She was writing about the microbes in Jesus' intestines, the sort of thing that is dear to my heart. Jesus' microbiome. So, you know, none of us is a singular organism. We are, in our bodies, an interconnected community of creatures. An assemblage, an island of creatures, is how Melissa put it. When you look at a human being, you might think of it as an individual organism from a single species, but if you zoom in a few million times, you'll find that there are many other species living on and inside every human being. Microbes, bacteria, viruses, fungi. Some of these are essential to our health. We were born with most of these communities inside of us. They are inextricably linked to us. We don't exist without them. We are more ecosystems, really, than individuals. Jesus is too, Melissa says. And she says, for the risen Christ to remain human, he has to return as the full community of creatures that constitute his body, hearts and lungs and muscles and blood and billions of living bacterial communities. Resurrected. It's a little bit funny. It's just, it's not just an individual holy man, but this bacterial community that gets resurrected. It's a little bit funny to think of, and also somehow profoundly hopeful to me, and like a good thing to think about on Earth Day weekend. Irenaeus, one of the early founders of the Christian faith, says, according to Melissa, that in the resurrection, creation is liberated from every form of alienation and from everything contrary to the life of communion. Resurrection replaces estrangement with communion. I like that. I don't know what that means in Jesus' resurrected microbiome, Maybe his microbiome is like this totally harmonious community or something. Like the good bacteria isn't competing with the bad bacteria anymore. The viruses have laid down their arms. The fungi have paid way for, paved the way for the vitamins. I mean, I honestly don't know enough about biology to talk very intelligently about this. But I love this direction. Isaiah prophesied lambs who will lie with wolves and lions who will eat straw. The whole thing is an upending of what we know. 
for the redemption of all that is. Maybe it makes sense, or if not quite sense, then beauty, that Jesus insists on eating with his friends after he comes back. It's a physical sort of communion, a shared meal. We aren't running the show here. We're being invited to live on in this communion. Mm -hmm.